Well, welcome again. Uh, happy to have you here uh, worshiping with us uh, this Lord's Day. And I understand wherever you are worshiping, whether you are in your homes, uh, you may be some other place, but, uh, but you, you're here with us uh, in spirit. We give thanks to our God for the Holy Spirit who unites us together in our worship. We um, just note a couple of things. First of all, I wanted to thank uh, those who are helping again to make this worship uh, possible. We have, uh, of course, Amy uh, Reber again playing on the piano and Lynn Folks on the flute. And those who are singing uh, in the choir are Sandy Boyd, Dick Forrester, Barb Browntree, Jan Murray, uh, Susie Patterson, and Joel Morrison, who will also uh, be giving uh, a special song this morning. I want to uh, thank everyone who, for the just the way that you have continued uh, to practice your giving of your offerings. You've been doing that through the, the mail, through dropping it off at the church, using your bank. And uh, we are, we're just so thankful for that because that helps us to continue to carry on meeting the expenses of the church. So just continue to encourage you uh, to keep that up. I also want to encourage you, those are members of the church, to be uh, continuing to check up on one another. Give each other a call, send them a text, an email, but particularly give them a call or one person's been uh, writing cards. Uh, this is especially a time that we need to keep reminding one another that uh, we're not alone, we have not been forgotten. And then I want to again reiterate is each time, if you do have a need, don't think of your need as being either too large or being too small, or being a burden. Your church family is here for you. We want to help. So please let us know. You can call into the church. You can call me. You can email me. We want to be there to help you. Now let's prepare our hearts for worship.
We're called to worship. Let me read from Second Timothy chapter two, verse eight. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Let's uh, give praise and thanks to our risen Lord. We're going to sing Hallelujah, Hallelujah.
We do come and we lift up the name of our great God on high. We give praise to God the Father who has sent the Son to die for us and yet to raise him again from the dead. We give you praise for God the Son who gave up his life for us and yet has demonstrated his great power over death by his resurrection. We give you praise for God the Holy Spirit whom the Son has sent to us, who has awakened us uh, to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, to believe in him, to have eternal life in him. And may by that spirit now we offer up worship that is pleasing, honoring to our great God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. For a confession of faith, I invite you now to recite with me. You'll find that uh, in your church bulletin, this confession of faith, of giving uh, thanks and praise to our God. Let us confess together. With joy we praise you, gracious God, for you created heaven and earth, made us in your image, and kept covenant with us, even when we fell into sin. We give you thanks for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who by his life, death, and resurrection Open to us the way of everlasting life. Therefore, we join our voices with all the saints and angels and the whole creation to proclaim the glory of your name. For our first scripture reading, I'm going to be reading from John 6, verses 35 to 40. Again, if you're using the bulletin that is there provided on site, uh, you'll find that there, or you, again, you can turn to your in, into this in your Bibles. So John 6, beginning with verse 35, let us hear the word of God. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's continue to worship our Lord through song. We're going to sing the hymn, Up from the Grave He Arose.
us turn now to the Lord in prayer. We praise you again, our great God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, and we give praise all the more strongly for the resurrection of our Lord. The death could not keep him in the grave. Uh, the, the stone that had been rolled in front of that tomb cannot keep him in. Through your power, through the power of our great God, our Lord has overcome death itself. Because he has overcome that death, we ourselves are here now to give you worship. For without that resurrection, there would be no hope of our salvation. No testimony that the sacrifice made upon that cross was accepted. We ourselves would still be lost in our sins. We could have no hope of our own resurrection, of any of life eternal to come. We would be as those who must believe that uh, death is, has the complete saying, that it is the final word. But we give you praise that that is not the final word. Because of the resurrection, we know that it is life, that it is a life eternal, that it is life that is a blessed life in the presence of our God. And we look to that day of the final resurrection to come, of our own resurrection, and of our Lord returning in all of his glory and the establishment, the consummation of his kingdom upon this earth. And that kingdom will truly come and be completed and your will will be done on this earth as it is in heaven because heaven and earth will be married together oh we give you thanks for this glorious vision we have all because of this resurrection that we celebrate that we have sung about that we continue to give thanks and praise each day our father we must confess Even so, with this resurrection, even with the the coming, the presence of your Spirit, and to regenerate us, to give us new life, and to believe in this glorious truth, that too often of time we have acted as though this world, again, is all that there is. There is no resurrection. There is no eternal life. And we have let the, the cares, the trials of this world, overwhelm us at times to to defeat us, to put us in despair. And we, we confess this before you, that we have not put our eyes upon our Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have lived uh, defeated lives. We have lived lives in which all we have, have seemed to have cared about is what we gain in this world. It has led us into further sin. It has led us to lie, to cheat, to deceive others, to commit murder in our hearts, certainly to commit idolatry. So we confess this. We, we, we must confess before you because you know us. You know what is in our hearts. We cannot hide anything from you. And yet it is that very thought that we can hide nothing from you. That gives us hope. Because if you can know everything, everything, all of our thoughts, everything that is in our hearts, even that which we keep from ourselves, and yet still love us with that steadfast love, that love that is founded in our Lord Jesus Christ, that love that now has come because you have adopted us as your, your children, That love that is based upon your promises. That is based upon our Lord Jesus Christ even now interceding for us. That love that is based upon the the presence of the Holy Spirit literally within us. Uniting us to you. Causing us to, to grow in sanctification. If you can love us with that love while you fully know our sins. 
What assurance, what comfort, what a blessing this is. That we no longer have to try to put on a mask before you. Try to pretend to be what we are not. And when we have stumbled, to know that we can come to our Father. And there we will find mercy and and love and, and forgiveness. To know that we can never be cast away. How wondrous this is, and may we each day rest in this thought. For it is, a, it is in resting in, in your steadfast love in the work of Jesus Christ that will all the more then give us that strength and that desire to live lives that are pleasing to you, to overcome these sins that so often beset us. Oh, we give you praise. That the gospel is not the news about what we must do to keep within your favor. The gospel is that good news of what our Lord Jesus Christ has done. What God the Father has done. What God the Holy Spirit has done. And you in the work that you carry out, you will complete that work and you will not fail. Oh, we praise you and thank you. We pray for this good news to go forth into this world, and especially at this time, in which the whole world is experiencing uh, the, uh, the plague of this pandemic, of the coronavirus. And we pray, our Father, that you would use this tragedy, this crisis, in glorious ways to bring many into your kingdom, that they will see the, uh, how frail that we all are, how little power that we actually do have over our lives. And that we would turn and seek after the blessing of the great sovereign God who has created us, who is our King, who is our Lord, who alone can be our Redeemer. May we, your people, be faithful in the proclamation of your word, in loving our neighbor, in and caring for their safety and for their welfare, and sharing with them the good news and showing forth the light of the gospel. May we be faithful to you as we, as we show forth the power and the love of Jesus Christ. We pray, our Father, for uh, the world leaders, leaders in their countries, leaders in their uh, states and territories, in their communities, all who day after day are bearing great responsibility in making decisions that affect the the safety, the, the welfare of their people and of their communities. We lift up our president. Uh, we lift up those who are counseling him. We lift up the governors and those who are counseling them, particularly those from the medical community. And as they seek to balance and begin to think about returning uh, our society back more and more to its normal uh, ways, to give them wisdom, difficult decisions to make, great wisdom is needed to know how to protect uh, their people, how to get the economy going again, and balancing those things. And we pray for them, uh, that you would sustain them, uh, give them discernment. Uh, give them a sense of, of justice and compassion. All that more, give them the wisdom that they need. We pray for the leaders of our own church. And as they continue, our elders, to shepherd their flock and to guide them. Pray for your wisdom and guidance upon our deacons. And, and as our leaders are beginning to think uh, how we may come back together Guide them in the decisions they must make. We pray that you would shepherd our people, those who are sick, whether it's from the virus or not from the virus, those who continue to to have other illnesses and chronic pain, and we pray for their safety, for their healing. We lift up uh, those who uh, are all the more feeling alone because they are single, uh, they do not have family with them or spouses, and we pray for them, that you especially would uphold them in this time. 
And may we, again, your people, may we faithfully reach out to one another and to love each other in Jesus Christ. Guide us in our worship now. For each one who is listening in to this prayer, who's worshiping now, I pray for your blessings uh, upon them and to lift them up. I pray that you would use the proclamation of your word to pastor your people. And commit all this before you in Christ's name. Amen.
Our next uh, scripture reading is taken from uh, John, we're going back to chapter 2. This is verses 18 to 22. John chapter 2. Let us hear the word of God. So the Jews said to him, that is to Jesus, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And therefore he was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture Excuse me, and the word that Jesus had spoken. Again, I invite you now to, to look at the text that we're going to be uh, uh, looking at now. Uh, this is John 20. We'll be reading from verse, well, we'll be studying verses 19 through 31. And uh, as we go through this, the thing we're going to note here, I want to point out the, the there's an odd common element, not only in John, but it in, in all four Gospels about the first Easter. And you, you probably have already picked up on this. And that is the reluctance of Jesus' closest companions. I mean, those who have been with him now, who have professed faith in him. But they were so reluctant to believe in his resurrection. They did not anticipate it. And even when confronted with the empty tomb, even then they did not believe it was due to the resurrection. As Thomas is going to demonstrate, it would be no less than the appearance by Jesus in the flesh that would lead them to believe. Now, thankfully... Jesus made those appearances, and John records two of those appearances for us to study today. Let's begin looking at the text again in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So let's look back at here. What's the scenario that we have here? Okay, the, most of the disciples, they're hiding out in a house in fear for their lives. I mean, they saw what happened to their shepherd, and they're expecting now to be next in line for execution. Now, when Jesus uh, appears, I suspect that the same reaction They had, there was the same reaction as that from long ago. Remember the time when he was walking on the water? They see him, and what do they think it is? They think it's a ghost. I mean, all of a sudden now, he's appearing before them. Well, his word of peace, but even more importantly, when he displays the mark of crucifixion on his flesh, that assured them that here he was alive in the flesh. Now, undoubtedly, there was more that was said than what John records here. He gives us just a a small sample. And yet, knowing John, he's including what he thinks is essential. What are the essential words of Jesus to his disciples? Well, it is a commissioning. In fact, this is John's version of the Great Commission. Jesus is commissioning his disciples to go forth with the same mission, he says, that he had from the Father. Now, he does not mean that they also are or can die for anyone's sins, but they will suffer. 
And indeed, many, if not most of them, uh, will face death. But note also here that they have a mission of forgiveness to carry out. Let me read that again. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, this is an unexpected instruction that Jesus gives, and it's uh, one that's actually very problematic for us Protestants, at least as far as our Catholic brethren are concerned. First of all, it's, it's unexpected. It just doesn't fit with the commissioning words that we find in the other Gospels. In Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples what to, to go and make disciples and, and baptize them in his name. You go to Mark, Mark, Jesus saying, proclaim the gospel. We turn to Luke, there Jesus is telling them to be his witnesses. They all pretty much fit together. Now, if John, you know, being unique as he is, if he had made reference earlier in his gospel somewhere about the, uh, about this forgiveness, then we could say, well, this is a special emphasis of John. And I could have taken you back to other passages, and we say, oh, yeah, I, I see that. But this is the only time this concept appears in John. It's just right here in this one verse. Now, it's problematic also for what it seems to teach. It seems to teach that Jesus is empowering the apostles with the same authority he had to forgive sins, and for that matter, even to withhold a forgiveness of sins. And it leads us Protestants to ask the same questions that those religious leaders had asked. You remember in that story of the, uh, the, the paralegic who was lowered from the roof, and what does Jesus do at the beginning? And he, he forgives the man's sins, and what do the leaders ask? Well, who can forgive sins but God? So we have that kind of question as well. Now, Roman Catholics, they see here the basis of their confession system. Whereas one goes to a priest and receives absolution and instruction for the penance that one needs to perform uh, to obtain that absolution. Now, I I have to admit, I, I think the argument is strong. It's strong except for the lack of instruction or evidence of its practice in the rest of the New Testament. There's no example of any apostle uh, doing this type of thing in the book of Acts. It's not there. There's no instruction in any of the epistles. Paul does not, uh, in his pastoral epistles, that's when he's writing Timothy, Titus, he gives no instruction for it. So we don't read anything more about it. And it would seem that the apostles have failed to carry out their Lord's commission unless, well, unless they understood the words differently. So how then would they have understood their commission? Well, we can get a good idea of it when we go to the book of Acts. Now, I want us to consider these verses. They are all the verses in the book of Acts in which the apostles speak of forgiveness. Let me read them to you. First of all, in Acts 2.38, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then in chapter 5.31, God exalted him, that is, Jesus, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Or chapter 10, 43. To Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. In 13, verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And finally, in 26.18, Paul here is quoting 
Jesus commissioned uh, to his ministry to, that, that he gave Paul for his ministry to the Gentiles. He wanted Paul to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, that is, in Jesus. So we look at these examples, and these are all the examples uh, in the, the book of Acts. It's evident that the apostles understood their commission to be that of proclamation, of proclaiming, of teaching what is the only basis for forgiveness. And that is repentance and having faith in Jesus Christ for forgiveness. So on that basis, the apostles then had the authority to pronounce who is forgiven and to withhold that pronouncement to those who would reject their message. Now let's move on to Thomas. I'm in verse 24 through 29. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place of my fingers into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, if you believe because you have seen me, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, it is this passage that gives uh, Thomas that label of a doubting Thomas. He will not believe his brothers. Why? I, I don't know. Did he think that maybe altogether they somehow experienced an hallucination? Did he think they were lying? Well, whatever the case, I mean, Thomas is a hardened unbeliever. And so it's all the more significant then is the response when Jesus appears again to him. Now, it's, it's pretty evident. We don't get the impression that he actually took up Jesus' invitation to touch the nail and spare marks. And once he sees his Lord, he simply utters the highest acclamation of Jesus' deity. My Lord and my God. You know, Jesus had been acclaimed. People had, had made these acclamations about him. They had accused him of claiming to being the Son of God. No one ever went quite as far as Thomas to say God. And Thomas acknowledges him there. Not simply as my Lord, as my Master, but my God. And I want you to note further there that Thomas speaks of Jesus in those terms of my Lord. Of my God. He's not making a subjective statement. He's not saying, well, this is how I just feel about it, that uh, there might be others who, who have other gods. Now, what Thomas is doing here is he's submitting himself before his Lord and his God. He is saying that I belong to you. You are the God who is my creator, who has all authority. Over me. Now let's turn to the final verses at the end of this chapter. Verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may, <clears throat> so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Here John's making clear that he has an agenda in writing his gospel. Okay, he's not, he's not writing a biography. 
He's not just writing something that he thought, you know, people would be interested to know about uh, this character since he's become fairly well known. He's not telling a story for entertainment. He is a preacher evangelist through and through. He wants his readers to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, not just that he professed or that there are people who profess him to be Messiah. He wants his readers to believe it, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And he chose, as he said, look, there's much more that could have been written. But he selected his particular miraculous signs to present for that purpose. He gives much greater detail than the others of the dialogue and the teachings of Jesus for that purpose. He is trying to persuade anyone who is reading this gospel. And then he discloses his goal for his readers. He wants them to believe so that they will have life in Jesus' name. And what does that mean about having life? He means eternal life. Numbers of times, beginning there in chapter 315, he uses this term of eternal life. Life that goes on forever, it is everlasting. See, John believes that without Jesus, his readers will perish. That's what he says in, in chapter 3, verse 16. He believes that without Jesus, the wrath of God remains on them. Again, back in 3, verse 36. He believes that they are under the dominion of death, as he says back in 5, verse 24. And yet, if they can be persuaded to believe in Jesus as their Messiah, their Savior, well, they can attain eternal life. And so, for John, as many as are so persuaded that Jesus is the Messiah, and receive this eternal life, then he has achieved his purpose. And as many as are not so persuaded, you know, even if they, they think uh, they are, are enriched in some way by this, they think it's a great story, makes them a better person, as far as John is concerned, he has failed. Believing in Jesus and attaining eternal life is what matters. So now, let's go back over this and look at some personal lessons that we can gain uh, from our text. Let's go back, first of all, to that subject about forgiveness. We discussed the oddity of Jesus, of John's inclusion of Jesus' remark about forgiving. Now, however odd it might have seemed, evidently, John considered forgiveness to be central to the gospel. And so I want us to think about the importance of forgiveness. I'm a pastor. I'm not a priest. I do not absolve uh, my people of sins, nor do I prescribe penance for them to perform. But even so, people do come to me and they confess their sins. They, They are worried. Perhaps they're not Christians. Perhaps that God does not or he cannot forgive them of that particular sin or, or the sin they, they keep committing. Well, I listen. I ask questions. In particular, I ask questions pertaining to their faith in Christ. And I will then assure them of forgiveness or, in a few cases, I've had to warn them uh, to examine their position before God. I take seriously my role as minister of the gospel. I take seriously that role to give assurance or to withhold that assurance. And oftentimes I will say, I'm telling this to you as a minister of the gospel. But you also have a similar role. When it comes to those who are outside the church, you and I are priests. And it is our responsibility to to mediate the gospel for our neighbors. We are to offer the forgiveness of God that comes through believing in Jesus Christ. We're to offer that even to those who have previously been the most hardened of sinners. 
On the other hand, we may not give assurance of God's forgiveness to any who will not believe in him. Despite how kind, how good they may be seen to be without him. Forgiveness rests in the work of Jesus alone on the cross. And we need to be proclaiming that and teaching that to our neighbors. But forgiveness is to be quickly and generously offered in another way. We are to personally be forgiving persons. We are to be quick to forgive the wrongs done to us. We are to be slow to be resentful. We are certainly to be uh, slow in becoming better and holding on to our unforgiveness. We are to take seriously the call to forgive one another. And I have to say, over the years, I have found it odd, and I found this in every church that I've pastored, how odd it is that it is within the church that forgiveness tends to be the hardest to exercise. You know, it's not that we refuse to say that we forgive. But in practice, we keep our distance from those we think have wronged us. Indeed, the oddest part of this all is that even when the offender asks us, for example, well, what is wrong? Or they specifically ask for forgiveness. We'll we'll, we'll pretend that there is nothing wrong, that there's nothing to forgive. Now, this is not unique to the modern church. In his letter to the church in Philippi, in in the epistle of Philippians, Paul pleads with two women to reconcile. And these were apparently pillars of the church. Now understand that there is great power. This is the power of the gospel in forgiving. There is great power in asking to be forgiven. And we Christians especially should be quick to ask forgiveness for the wrongs that we have committed against our non-Christian neighbors. That is a great testimony of the power of the gospel. So there is the message of forgiveness. There is clearly the message here about believing without seeing. Let's go back to that section on Thomas. Now, though Thomas is known for doubting, he hardly was alone. The male disciples all doubted the testimony of the women when they came back to them, first of all, that morning and said they'd seen Jesus. Mary Magdalene herself, she never suspected that her Lord rose from the dead when she came and found that tomb empty. What Jesus said to Thomas, he could have said to all of his disciples and his followers, blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. And what was the point that Jesus was making? Is he saying that we are to believe in him and in his resurrection without evidence? Are we to have a a blind faith? Well, I think Jesus' argument to Thomas was this. That he had already had all the evidence needed to believe. Besides the testimony of his fellow disciples, Thomas had followed Jesus, we think, you know, for about three years. As Jesus said to Philip, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Now, Philip and the other disciples should believe in Jesus because they ought to believe him. What he says about himself. Or as Jesus added at that time, they should believe because of his miraculous works. All of the disciples had heard heard Jesus say more than once that he would rise from the dead. They had seen the miracles that he had accomplished. And you think especially when he had raised Lazarus from the tomb. Shouldn't that have been enough evidence to believe in his own resurrection? You know, it is one thing to have doubt, to have questions that need to be addressed. particularly before you, you make this big decision of believing in the resurrection of Jesus. But it is another to raise unreasonable objections. 
to refuse to believe, however much evidence is given, however often your questions are answered. There are those of you who might say now that you would like to believe in Jesus and in his resurrection. But, well, you know, there's just not enough evidence. Well, I would challenge you, is that really the case? Can you honestly say that you have given the matter proper research? Has your research included those who give the case for Jesus as Messiah? Or has it been limited to those who refute the case? Can you say that you have kept an open mind in your research? Have you ever really intended to turn your life over to Jesus should the evidence lead you to it? Or have you all along known that you would never make that kind of commitment? Think of this. Should you appear before God in judgment, do you think you will be able to say to him that, well, you, I would have believed if only you, God, had provided enough evidence? Are you a doubting Thomas? Or are you, or are you in truth, a refusing to believe uh, Thomas? And so we've talked about forgiveness, talk about believing uh, without having to see Jesus in the flesh. And then there is that important point that John makes at the end here about eternal life. All of this leads us to John's reasoning for why he wrote his gospel. He had intended his book, his gospel, to be the evidence needed to believe in Jesus. And then by believing in him to have eternal life. John believed that the stakes are high. Indeed, that they are the highest that there can be. That the difference here about believing or not believing is the difference between eternal life and eternal death. That the difference is between peace with God or being under his wrath. According to John, the difference is between receiving forgiveness for one's sins or having that forgiveness withheld and receiving condemnation. The stakes are high. Now, you might reply that you do not like those stakes. Maybe you think they're unfair. But the real question should be whether they are true or not. And if they are true, what lies before you is choosing life or death. Now, the choice is simple. It's not complicated. And keep in mind further that the means of attaining life is simple. Simply believe in Jesus as the Son of God, your Savior. I mean, there's no great work to do. There's no deep learning to attain. Simply believe. It is an offering that anyone is capable of, of accepting, including you. And then keep in mind the cost to God to make this salvation simple. The father gave up his son. The son gave up his life. Is this not high love? Is this not wondrous mercy? And if you think not, is that due to an honest assessment? Or is it due to your pride? That you simply cannot accept the gospel's assessment of yourself that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness, and that there is nothing you can do about it except look to Jesus. Now, to you who have been convicted of your sins, you have turned to Jesus in, in faith for salvation and for forgiveness. Remember that as God the Father sent Jesus, his Son, so Jesus sends us to bear witness to the good news for him and of him. We must ourselves be people of forgiveness. We must be known for our quickness to forgive and to love. There are those, there are neighbors, who have a hard time looking into the evidence of Jesus 
because of the poor evidence displayed in the lives of Christians that they know. And the best evidence we can give to anyone is the love of Jesus displayed in and through us. The clearest light of, uh, that our neighbors will see is the light shining out of us as we love them. You know that bumper sticker you see on cars, Christians are not perfect, just forgiven. It is such a poor testimony to the work of Christ in us. Now, it's one thing to, you know, to not to claim perfection. But it is another to testify that nothing has been done in us to make us more loving and forgiving. Now, let us keep the same goal as John had always before him. That is to give such evidence that our neighbors may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing they may have life in his name. Let's pray. We do give you praise, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, the one that you gave up, your only Son, for us. We give you thanks for Jesus Christ who gave up himself for us. And we give you thanks this story did not end in, in death upon a cross or burial in a tomb, but in resurrection. And that he rose again in the flesh. That he still has that body. And that someday we shall see him again return, not in humility, but in all of his glory. Give us faith to believe this, to hold on to it to be stirred by it, so that we might be testimonies ourselves to our neighbors of the power, of the love, of the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We're going to continue and close our worship by singing together, Because He Lives.
Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.